Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. All right, so I said we are in Proverbs 20. We left off about two-thirds of the way through that particular chapter. So actually, if you would look over to verse 20, this is where we are. Again, we're in a section where there's a, a number of individual ideas, so they all don't lump together. So we can just pick up and, and stop pretty much wherever without losing sort of the context of things. So we are in verse 20, and it says this. If one curses his father or his mother, his lamp will be put out in outer darkness. If one curses his father or his mother, his lamp will be put out in outer darkness. Many of us are familiar with the Ten Commandments. Uh, maybe we, we certainly know the title, the Ten Commandments. I imagine the movie had something to do with it, uh, to drive it home. And in there, you know that in those ten, the fourth commandment says to honor your father and your mother. Now, what's interesting about that fourth commandment, Paul points out in the New Testament, we probably would have picked it up ourselves, is that that is the first of the commandments that comes with a promise. And so the commandment says to honor your father and mother, then it goes on to say that your days may be long in the land. So those first three commandments of the 10 are pretty much straightforward given. Do these things because I say so. And the Lord has the right to do that. And he says, do these things because I say so. But as he enters into that fourth commandment, he begins to give a promise with the commandment. Do these things because it will be for your good. And that becomes in many ways the pattern of God's command scattered throughout the scripture. And we've been on Wednesday nights, we've been working our way through the book of Leviticus. And we see that that is the pattern of God's law. You do these things and I'll bless you. You choose not to do these things, and you'll experience the consequences for not doing so. And so we're in Leviticus chapter 26 on Sunday mor- or excuse me, on Wednesday uh, evenings, and we just spent our time this week considering that. Deuteronomy chapter 28 will do the same thing. And so here you have now Solomon saying, back to verse 20 of Proverbs 20, if one curses his father or his mother, his lamp will be put out in outer darkness. The admonition of Scripture is for a son or a daughter to honor his or her parents. And that continues on even into our adult years. Now, unfortunately, some parents have failed miserably in their responsibilities as parents, and they hardly seem deserving of honor. And the more appropriate action, it seems, in instances like that is to curse our parents in instances like that, or to bring shame upon our parents for the miserable job, perhaps, that some of them have done. But Solomon says that the way of wisdom is to refrain from doing so. It may seem more appropriate in those instances to respond in that particular way, but Solomon says, no, the way of wisdom is to refrain from doing so. And so even in those instances where we're dealing with parents who seem to be devoid of honor— The follower of Christ can continue to reverence God's command by seeking to show honor, to show respect to their parents in a way that minimizes the exposure of their failures and even covers over a multitude of sins, as the scripture says in the book of 1 Peter. Now, Solomon does not promise that such a decision will be an easy decision. He doesn't say, honor your parents, it'll be a piece of cake, you'll love it, especially those that were not so good. He doesn't promise it's going to be an easy decision, but what he assures us is that such a decision will be a decision that is to the path of blessing. And so again, we read that verse and it says, if one curses his father or his mother, his lamp will be put out, uh, will be put out in utter 
darkness. The way of blessing is to honor our parents as their scripture teaches us. Verse 21 continues, an inheritance gained hastily in the beginning will not be blessed in the end. An inheritance gained hastily in the beginning will not be blessed in the end. In Luke chapter 15, we have the account of a parable that Jesus told. It was to a group of tax collectors, sinners, as Jesus liked to refer to those folks, um, as many of us tomorrow will be referring to them uh, as tax collectors and sinners. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, Jesus, a group of tax collectors and sinners, they come to Jesus, they're grumbling, they're complaining against them, they're, they're him, I should say, they're raising issues. And so he's responding and he raises or he brings up a parable. He tells the story of a parable. And the parable is designed, this particular parable is designed to paint a picture of a terrible person that has done terrible things. And then for Jesus to essentially ask the unspoken question, would the father forgive the person for that? And so he tells him this story, he paints this picture of a terrible person that has done terrible things and essentially asks that question, would the father forgive that individual? And most of us are familiar with it. And gloriously, we discover that the answer to that question is yes. That even though he did those terrible things, the father will forgive that individual if he returns in repentance. You, you know the story. It's the parable of the prodigal son. And it's interesting to note that the parable of the prodigal son, this man who did terrible things, this terrible man who did terrible things, that that parable begins with this man asking for the inheritance of his father. And of course, you know, the father wasn't even yet dead. And essentially the son is saying in that instance, I've been rooting for you to kick the bucket here and you're taking too long. I'm looking for the cash. Can I just have it now? And amazingly, the father gives it to him there. Luke 15, 12 says this. He says to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And if you know the story, you know that he goes out and he lives in all sorts of riotous or reckless living. He quickly blows through all of those funds. And again, remember, Jesus' point is to paint this picture of a terrible man that did terrible things and whether or not the father will forgive him. That's his point of this particular parable because he's dealing with these tax collectors and these sinners and others are watching and can those people be forgiven? And so he thinks of a worst case scenario. That's his key point. But that doesn't mean there can't be other points here. And remember, when Jesus will tell a parable, he will use a, a life circumstance that everybody can say, oh, I know what he's talking about. I've been in that situation. I remember a similar situation that I dealt with at a particular point in time. He used examples so familiar with the people that the people could grab a hold of them and follow along with where he was going. And so in this instance, he uses the example of a young man receiving a large inheritance and being unable to handle that large inheritance. And that would be an idea, because this is his pattern, Jesus' pattern, that would be an idea that the people could resonate with. Matthew Henry said this, he said, an estate that is suddenly raised is often as suddenly ruined. And so whether we're talking about acquiring a huge inheritance or we're talking about hitting the lottery or some get rich quick scheme that is out there, the reality is this, that more often than not, wealth that is acquired hastily is mishandled by those that acquire it. They don't know how to handle it. I, I share with you the example within seven years, uh, lottery winners, the, like 80% of lottery winners are bankrupt within 70 years. They're worse off than before they won that money because wealth acquired hastily is often mishandled uh, by those that acquire it. 
And so when wealth, and the word inheritance there in the proverb, it just simply means possessions. When possessions are acquired, in particular through unethical means, the Lord can't bless that. And so if you go back to that particular proverb again to read it to you, an inheritance, possessions gained hastily in the beginning will not be blessed in the end. Whether, again, it's through the lottery, through some quick, quick some get-rich-quick scheme, or particularly when it is acquired in some ethical means. The Lord cannot bless it, and it will quickly run through that person's hands. Verse 22 goes on. It says, do not say I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord, and he will deliver you. You ever said that? I'm going to get him. He did that to me. She did that to me. I am going to get back at her or him or whatever. I'll say this. I, I imagine we all know this. Every one of us here is going to have people sin against us or wrong us in some way. We live in a fallen world. Don't be surprised by it. Don't, I can't believe they would do that to us. Every one of us, in one way or another, is going to have people wrong us or even sin against us. And sometimes those offenses are innocent. The person wasn't thinking, they were too busy, they were distracted, whatever it may be. Sometimes they wrong us in an innocent fashion. Other times, it seems like they go out of their way to plot evil against us. I think that's a good term for it. You've been there, and you know it when it feels like someone purposefully is going out of their way to harm us or to sin against us. He says here, do not repay, do not say I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord, and he will deliver me. I can deal with, sometimes, sometimes I'm frustrated by it, but I can deal with an innocent offense against me. It's really hard for me to deal with when somebody seems to set out to get me. That feels like evil to me. And in those instances, I want to respond. Oh, I'll show you. I'm bigger than you, man. I'll get even with you. I'm smarter than you, or I'm more vile than you. You should see the things running around in my head that I can do to you. And I want to repay evil for evil. Solomon says, don't repay evil for evil. Solomon says, leave it to the Lord. Well, that's pretty easy to do, isn't it? Just entrust the Lord with that. That's also a message that is repeated often in the New Testament. And it's repeated often. Remember that guy, I think it was William Arnaud, the things we really need to learn is the things that are repeated often in Scripture because our tendency is to want to get even and say, look, man, all the rules are off now. You broke the rules, and so I can break the rules. But the Lord says, no, do not repay evil for evil. Solomon says, leave it with the Lord. And it's repeated often in the New Testament. Jesus, you know, famously, he instructed his disciples, if someone strikes you on the one cheek, turn to them also the other. The apostle Peter said, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, so I can do that. All right, I won't get even. I'm not going to pray that you're blessed. That's not natural to me. That's like, Jesus, you really got to change me if I'm going to do that. But he says, on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. That's Peter's words. Paul the apostle said, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Then Paul goes on to say this, beloved, never avenge yourselves. We need to underline this, folks. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And so again, if you live in this world, you have to expect that people are going to sin against you and even do things uh, that will hurt us. 
People are going to do it. And it's in those instances that we have to entrust ourselves to the Lord, let him do that which he does. Again, it's not easy, but it is the path to blessing, according to Solomon here in the Proverbs. You can go and do it your own way. I just got to watch out for myself. I got to let people know I'm not a doormat. I got to defend myself at all costs and get even, and then other people will see, and they're not going to do anything to me as well. You can do it your own way. Hey, go ahead. I don't want to encourage you to do it, but go ahead and then come back and let us know how that worked out. Did it work out as you desired? Do you feel better now that you stuck it to somebody else who stuck it to you previously? Let us know how it works out. I'll say this. If you entrust yourself to the Lord and you leave it to the Lord to defend your cause and deal with those who have wronged you, especially those who it seems have purposely set out to wrong you, we know how things will work out. I don't know how it's going to work out if you take up your own cause. It may work out to your benefit, it may not. I know how it will work out if you give it over to the Lord. Because again, Solomon is reminding us that is the path to sure blessing. And we can entrust ourselves to the Lord. I look back, I've been a believer now about 30 years. I look back over 30 years and I have experience in that time period of saying I can entrust myself to the Lord. So maybe you haven't been a believer that long, or maybe you haven't kind of obeyed this particular admonition. Learn a lesson from the old people that says, you know what, you can trust the Lord, and he will defend your cause, and he will fight your battles, so to speak. You can wait on the Lord, and he will bring vindication. And it's so peaceful, if I may just say that into the midst of that. Verse 23 says this, unequal weights are an abomination to the Lord, and false scales are not good. Now, last week in our study, we looked at verse 10, and then we also looked at 23. So today we'll remind ourselves of verse 10. Look at that verse. It says, unequal weights and unequal measures are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Very similar wording there in both of those instances. And so we won't spend too much time with this since we considered it before. But the Lord's desire and the way of wisdom is that we would pattern our ways after God's ways. So God is honest. God is fair, God is equitable, God is trustworthy. And his desire and the way that he blesses lives is when we too are those particular things. So in this instance, we're talking about certainly all of our dealings, but we're talking about business dealings here. Unequal weights and measures, buying and selling of items and so on. And it's important for us to be reminded the Lord cares about our business dealings. And part of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ is to bring Jesus into those dealings. Too often, we separate these things. There's my religious life, and then there's my business life, man. And I'm cutthroat, and I got to get ahead. Jesus says, no, I want to come into that, and I want to influence the way you deal with other people in those instances. And again, unequal weights and measures, whether you're on the consumer side or the merchant side, the Lord cares about your honesty and integrity in those circumstances. Verse 24, he continues. It says, A man's steps are from the Lord. How then can man understand his way? Now the thought here is that God is sovereign over human affairs. That's the idea that we've been reading about in the book of Proverbs. And ultimately, that the Lord alone knows best. Because the Lord alone can see the big picture. The Lord alone knows how things taking place right over here 
are going to impact things that are going to be going on down the pike from here in days, in weeks, and in years from now. That makes sense? The Lord knows how this particular thing is going to affect these things some 15 years from now. The Lord alone, alone knows these things. And our tendency is to think we have it all figured out, but in reality, as we're honest with ourselves, we realize we are far and very, very far from truly understanding those things that are ahead of us. And so we sit down and we, tr- we sort of plot out the direction that we want to go, but how quickly we have these right-hand turns, these 90-degree turns that go in a completely different direction. And our lives are very different than how we kind of pictured they would be five years ago, 10 years ago. Who knows what this particular week will hold for you? Your life could be radically changed from something that occurs tomorrow or by the end of this week or within the next six months or so. We don't know. We think we know, but we don't. The Lord knows because the Lord pulls back and he can see the whole thing in front of him. And so the Lord will cause these things to happen here, knowing how these things are going to impact these things over here. That's going to make no sense on the tape, but it makes a lot of sense, hopefully, for those of us that are here. And then you add to that, even if we could see this, we could pull back and we could see these things that are going to happen in 10 years from now. Even if we did have the ability to see those particular things, often we have very little understanding of the best way to get to this particular thing. And what would prepare me the best? What would move me in that direction so that I could handle this when I get there? Even our own understanding, we don't truly know what is good for us. And so then the solution is to develop a hard habit of committing our ways to the Lord. Not, Lord, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Would you please bless it? But rather, Lord, what direction do you want me to go? How do you want to work in my life? All right, Lord, I submit myself to your leading and your guidance and so on. And we look to God for that guidance. We submit ourselves to his will. You know, a picture, if you think of, if you have a a boat of some sorts that has an engine and a sail, you put that engine on, you can decide where you're going to go and whatever it may be. You turn that engine off, you raise the sails, and particularly like me, I don't know how to sail at all, so now I'm at the mercy of the wind. And that's the Lord, if you will. We raise the sails, we allow the Lord to direct our voyage. And I said it a bunch of times already. That's the way of wisdom that the Lord blesses, is to turn things over to him. And so we'd be wise to do that. Verse 25, it says, It is a snare to say rashly, it is holy, and to reflect only after making vows. Believe it or not, you are better off not making a vow at all than making a vow and not following through. You're better off not making a vow at all than making a vow and not following through. And Solomon himself told us this in the book of Ecclesiastes, one of the other books that he wrote for us in our scriptures. He said this, almost word for word what I just said, it's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. And then Solomon goes on to say, let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? You're better off not making a vow than making a vow and breaking that particular vow. If you say you're going to do it, then you follow through and do it. And this is why Jesus said in another place that we are to count the cost of what it is we are pledging ourselves to. Because oftentimes people want to commit to things for the sake of committing to things. You know, people are asking, I felt bad, I didn't want to say no, so I said I would do it. But then something better comes along, 
And the person's no longer in their presence, and so then they just go in another direction altogether. Sometimes folks pledge themselves to something because others are watching, and they want everyone to say to them, wow, look at you. You're the best. You're so awesome. Yes, I am. But they have no intention of doing it, and they're going to get elsewhere, and they'll move on to another direction altogether. Before you make any kind of vow, you should first be sure that you intend to fulfill that vow. Otherwise, don't make one at all. Say instead, I'll think about it. I'll pray about it. I have no intention of saying yes, so no. You know, say that. That's better than lying to the individual and trying to put on some front. So to approach your, to approach your vow otherwise when you are making it, when it's time to carry it out, when you know you're not going to carry it out, it's foolish. The Lord observes those things. Verse 26 says, a wise king winnows the wicked and drives the wheel over them. Now, we saw a similar verse last week about this idea of winnowing. That says in verse 8, a king who sits on the throne of judgment winnows all evil with his eyes. And, and the picture there, particularly where it talks about the winnowing wheel, the picture is of this individual, this ruler, using a threshing wheel over his subjects, designed to separate the wheat from the chaff, and it's going to press it down and, and separate it there. And so the picture here is the ruler using that wheel to separate the good from the evil within his particular uh, kingdom that he is ruling over. No kingdom can be established in peace when lawlessness and violence are allowed to run rampant among the people. It just can't happen. Evil has to be dealt with in a society. If it's not, it'll eventually run rampant and take over that particular society. So a good king, a good ruler, or in our country we have a series of rulers over us, good rulers will promote the stability of their society by rewarding good and dealing with evil. They will thresh, if you will, uh, with a threshing wheel and separate the wheat from the chaff, the good from the evil. And Solomon is pointing that out there. If you're a leader in some way, you'd be reminded to, to take heed. Verse 27 says, the spirit of a man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all of his innermost parts. The spirit of a man. It's the lamp of the Lord. This refers to our consciences. Everyone that lives has a conscience. Everyone that lives has a conscience. That inner voice, if you will, given to us by the Lord to direct us in the way that we should go and to convict us about the way that we should not go. Paul the Apostle tells us in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 2, that even the Gentile, the unbelieving Gentile, that's what he uses as his example there in that particular chapter, even the unbelieving Gentile has this conscience to point us to the way we should go and the way we should not go. He says this in verse 14 of Romans chapter 2. He says, when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they're a law to themselves even though they don't have the law. Verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. And so all of us have this conscience. All of us have this lamp of the Lord. The spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord. Now, this is very, very different from the Quaker idea of the inner light, that everybody has the inner light and you just got to follow that light. It's very different from contemporary rhetoric that says you just need to follow your heart. Your heart will tell you the right thing to do. That is not true. 
we know Jeremiah tells us that our, I think it's Jeremiah, somebody tells us in the Bible that our hearts are wicked, desperately wicked, and they're prone to go astray here. And the problem too often is, even though all of us have this conscience, too often many of us uh, confuse this inner voice of our conscience with the inner voice of our flesh. And so our flesh is saying, you should do that. You should go there. And we say, well, my heart was telling me, my conscience was telling me that I had to go and do this particular thing. Too often we mix those two up. Too often the message we hear from this world system that is around us is allowed to drown out the, ma- the message of God's natural leading. So we all have this conscience, but we have to make sure that, that our conscience is what is leading us, not our flesh, not the world system. And you couple that with all too often, as the scripture indicates, because of the hardness of our hearts and the rebelliousness of our spirits, too often our consciences can actually be seared. Seared, as it were, with a hot iron. Hardened over so that nothing can penetrate them. And so, yes, we all have these consciences, and they're given to us by the Lord, and they serve, as Solomon says here, as a lamp. They shed light on our innermost parts, our thoughts, our motives, our affections, our attentions. The conscience is designed by God to be an instrument that constantly keeps God in our mind, if you will. It keeps us, if you will, face-to-face with him. And it's also the instrument, the conscience is the instrument that God appeals to to reveal to man his inability to walk with God. And so we know what we're supposed to do, but we can't do it, right? That which I know that I should do, I don't do. What's the matter with me? Paul will say in Romans 7 and leading into Romans chapter 8. And so our consciences reveal to us that we fall short, our inability to even obey it, let alone God himself, and they bring us to the cross. And they bring us to our Savior, that you need a Savior. And we become utterly dependent on him. The spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord. And each of us would do well to make sure that that lamp is burning bright and clear. Every time you ignore your conscience, And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you ignore the leading of the Holy Spirit. There's a thin layer of skin that goes over your heart, if you will. And you do a little more and a little more and a little more. And pretty soon it becomes those hard calluses that it's very difficult to penetrate. The best way you can keep yourself in a right place with the Lord. And this is if you're a believer. If you're not a believer, you're already in a wrong place with the Lord. And he gave a son so that your sins could be forgiven. you got to deal with that problem first. But if you're a believer and you have the gift of the Holy Spirit, every time you say yes to the Lord, your heart remains soft. And when your heart is soft, the seed of God's word, the seed of his leading could enter in so that it might bear much fruit. And that's what we want, isn't it? And so we say yes. We would, be, we would all make sure that that lamp is burning bright and clear. Verse 28 says, Steadfast love. And faithfulness preserve the king, and by steadfast love, his throne is upheld. Now back in verse 26, we see there that the king, it's the king's wisdom to exer- execute judgment upon those in his kingdom that are doing evil. Remember that winnowing wheel, that threshing wheel designed to exercise judgment or execute judgment upon those that are doing evil. Here now, Solomon reminds us there's another side to that coin. And so... It is not a good king who just grabs his sword and just starts swinging it at people. That's going to get people to be in line. Certainly so. You don't want to be killed. But it's not going to win people's hearts. Eventually, people are going to be like, when you die, people are like, whew, that guy finally died. 
what wins people's hearts is not so much the execution of truth. It's love and it's mercy. Here he talks about, he uses the word steadfast love and faithfulness. That's what wins people's hearts. And so a king needs to be committed to truth. A ruler needs to be committed to truth and justice. And that can serve to keep people in line. But it's mercy and truth that wins over a person's heart. And I think that's a, there's an important reminder for all of us. Certainly, we have to be people of truth. Too often, we think that there's sort of this, uh, it's either one or the other. I could be nice and kind and say, well, whatever. Or I can be like a jerk almost and say, get yourself in line and have no mercy and truth or uh, mercy and kindness here. And they don't have to be exclusive from one another. We could be people of truth that still walk in mercy and kindness here. And that's the way it should be. And the virtues of a good king, the virtues of any leader, the virtues God would have for you and I is that we be people both of mercy and truth. And a leader that is characterized by mercy and, mercy and truth is going to win the respect as well as the support of his subjects. And so Solomon reminds us there, he puts it into context, the importance of both being a person who deals with evil, but does so in a way that is filled with mercy uh, as well. Important. Verse 29. That's exactly who Jesus was, isn't it? Like read through the gospel, who he is, I should say. But read through the gospels. When he was here on the earth, he didn't shy away from truth at all. He said some really hard things for people to hear. There were instances where people went away and they're like, oh my gosh, I got to think about that. But he also was a man who demonstrated mercy. Think about the woman at the well in particular. Here's this woman. She's, you know, a notorious sinner there. And Jesus deals with her. And he speaks truth into her life, but he also speaks mercy into her life. So very important. May the Lord cause us to be those types of people. Verse 29 It says, the glory of young men is their strength, but the splendor of old men is their gray hair, or lack of hair. (laughs) It's a modern translation. So Solomon speaks here of zeal and strength, and he applies that to young, to the young, uh, or to youth. But he also speaks of the splendor of wisdom that comes with age. And sadly, I think too often what happens is demographic groups, I think the church does this too, and it's a mistake. Too often demographic groups are pitted one against the other. There's the young people, and they might look at the old people and their old has-beens. And there's the old people, and then they would look at young people and say they don't know anything, they think they're so smart, whatever it may be. And too often the groups are pitted one against the other. What Solomon reminds us here is an important lesson for all of us to know is that both young and old have their advantages. The old people, and I purposely decided I wouldn't point out anyone in particular. I'll let you decide if you fall into that particular category. The old people should not despise the young people, and the young people should not despise the old people. Because young people have strength, and they have energy, and they have zeal, and they have fervor. They're Kevin Tallickson. Already on a lot of coffee. It's like, man, you got to settle down. They have those things. The old people have wisdom, experience, insight that comes from time. And all of those things are necessary. I wish I had the energy. I guess I'm in the old person category. I wish I had the energy I used to have. Because now I'm smart. Like I, I know things now. 
you know, and I used to freak out about things or this and that about it, and now I realize I'm not even going to remember this in a year or whatever. I have the wisdom that has come with time. I'm just too tired or, or whatever it may be. You understand what I'm saying? And so both of those things are necessary. And so we would be a wise body of believers that rather than pitting the one group against the other, ideally we would bring the two groups together to join and accomplish that which the Lord has for us to accomplish. So don't believe this lie that is out there in the world and even within many churches that it's one against the other, but rather let's come together. I think the best thing you can do if you're a young person, get yourself into a small group. Here you go, Will, this is for you. Get yourself into a small group where there's people of all different backgrounds. And so you have people that, whose kids are out of the ha- home. You have other people that are married and don't have children yet. You have other kids that are people that are going crazy and their kids are still in the home and all this stuff. And you're a college kid. I, I somehow stumbled across a home Bible study when I was 19 years old. And it was with all those different groups that I just mentioned there to you. It's one of the best things that I ever did. Because I learned it's not all about me. And it's not all about my 19-year-old life. But there's all these other people dealing with all their other things. And they learn the same things from you. And so it's one of the best things you can do. I would encourage you to do so. You can still go to your college group study or your over 50s group study. You can still go to those things, but get yourself involved with other people of different ages. It gives you a perspective on what other people are going through and what they're dealing with and how life isn't all about you and your circumstances. And that's a good thing, isn't it? Not always easy to hear, but it's a good thing. So I'd encourage you to do that. So we have signups for small groups, right, Will? At the front there, go find out which one you are going to join. Verse 30 says, blows that wound, cleanse away evil. Strokes make clean the innermost parts. The idea is a spanking. Some of us sometimes metaphorically need a spanking. And that's what it's speaking of here. The psalmist says this in Psalm 119. He says, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now have I kept thy word. And the idea in both of those instances is that a little bit of discomfort and affliction, it goes a long way toward correcting wayward behavior. It causes the person who strayed that little bit of discomfort or a lot of discomfort, it causes that one to stray to finally say, wait a minute, what am I doing? Why am I bringing this pain upon myself? This hurts. I should stop doing it. The pain then begins to outweigh the pleasure And so you put aside that thing that is bringing that affliction on you. And I mentioned earlier in our midweek study, we're looking at the book of Leviticus. This week, we were reading Leviticus 26. And in Leviticus 26, we read these words. It says, if by this discipline you are not turned to me, but walk contrary to me, then I also, this is God speaking, I also will walk contrary to you, and I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins. So notice there, the context, the Lord is saying, look, if you do these things, I'll bless you. That's what chapter 26 begins with. But if you refuse to do these things, I will allow the consequences of that decision to come upon you. And then again, notice in the verse there, verse 23, and if by this discipline you are not turned to me, I'll bring more discipline. He goes on to say sevenfold, and more discipline, and more discipline. Why? Because he's mad at you? Because he wants to get even? Because he wants you to realize, I can't believe you do this to me. Doom, doom, doom. Not at all. It's so that finally you will come to your senses and say, what am I doing? Why am I bringing all this pain upon myself? If I would just stop 
and obey, if I would just stop and do what I'm supposed to do, stop doing what I'm not supposed to be doing, the affliction will go away. That's the whole reason the Lord brings it here. His whole purpose is to turn people back to himself. And so he brings it, again, so that the the pain will outweigh the pleasure. And the person hopefully will choose to walk in obedience. And so whether we're talking about a parent walking with their children or a law enforcement official of some sorts, a judge of some sorts that's dealing with a citizen that has broken the law, or the Lord dealing with his people there in the nation of Israel and certainly in our lives as well. The principle is this, that affliction can serve positive purposes. And it's a method that the master teacher, capital M, capital T, uses to great effect. And so we, we would be wise individuals if we did so as well. Learn from those afflictions that come upon us and where need be, use them as necessary in those that we're working with. Let's go on to chapter 21. Verse 1, we'll just do a few verses in this chapter. It says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Now, we tend to think that the king or queen, the president, the prime minister, we tend to think that they're the highest individual in the land. And yet what we're reminded of here in this verse is there is always one that is higher still, capital uh, O. Uh, I was going to say zero, capital zero. Uh, Capital O, there is always one that is higher still. And as we learn throughout the pages, there is no ruler so great that they can truly act independent of God. And I was reminded of a few different instances, and there's probably a million in the scriptures. But I was reminded of our study back in the book of Esther. And you remember about halfway through the book of Esther, there's one particular evening. For no particular reason, but one particular evening, the king just can't sleep. And so he's there up and he's in his his bed and he's kind of like tossing and turning. And so he decides to invite in some of his servants and he says to them, read to me the minutes of the kingdom. That'll put you to sleep, right? Read to me the minutes of the kingdom. And it just so happens that the servant opens up the scroll or the book or whatever, and he turns to a particular place, and it just so happens that he begins to read of the heroic act of a fellow by the name of Mordecai. And you remember, if you were with us, that Mordecai there revealed a plot. He had overheard a plot to kill the king. And he revealed it to the king and his men, his servants, and so on, that someone is out to assassinate the king. And it just so happens, the king can't sleep. It just so happens, he says, uh, read for me the minutes to the kingdom. It just so happens that this is the story that they pick up. And it just so happens that at the time of these events, that the king, maybe he was shaken by the assassination attempt, whatever, that he was oblivious to the fact that the hero of the story, Mordecai, should probably be rewarded for that. But now he's thinking a little more clearly, and he says to him, what did we do to reward the guy that saved my life? And they look, and they're like, well, king, I hate to tell you, nothing. We didn't do anything at that particular. It just so happens that they hadn't done anything. Now, if you know the story, you know that the next morning, as soon as the sun comes up, the wicked Haman, boo, yeah, okay, you've all been to those services. What are they called? Purim uh, things. And so some of you are like, I don't know what's going on here. This place is a cult. All right, we're not a cult. Don't worry. Or whatever there. And so it's just Christian humor. All righty. Uh, so anyway, it just so happens that the next morning, this fellow, don't boo, this fellow Haman comes in, and he, said, and he is about to ask for Mordecai to be executed. The king interrupts him initially. He says, what should I do to honor the man that the king delights to honor? And he said, well, you should give him a parade. And he says, great, do it for Mordecai. 
You see how the Lord is in these events just moving things to cause these things to happen exactly as he wants them to? You remember in the New Testament era, the Gospels begin that there is a Caesar some 800 miles away or so in Rome who decides, you know what, I want to count all of my people in all of my kingdoms scattered throughout the world. Everybody needs to return to their, their place of origin, so to speak. And it just so happens that there is a woman in the last month of her pregnancy that is about 90 miles away that now has to get on a donkey or however she's going to get down there with her betrothed and make their way back to Bethlehem. And it just so happens that some six, 800 years earlier that the prophet said that the Messiah would be born in that particular town. There's no other reason why Mary would have made her way to Bethlehem but that the Lord is moving the king's heart. in this case, the Caesar's heart, like it's a stream of water, so that he will accomplish his particular purposes. The rabbis say coincidence is not kosher. And we see that in the scripture here. These things happen not by coincidence, but because there is another, capital A this time, that is in charge of these events, orchestrating these events. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And though the king, the queen, the prince, the well, not the prince, the president, the prime minister, though those people may be the most powerful person in the kingdom, even they are submitted to the Lord and his will. And God can change men's minds at any moment. There's this powerful, in, uh, like you can't sense it, operation that is going on inside of people so that that king will actually think, you know what I'm going to do? As if he came up with that idea when the reality is the Lord is implanting what he wants to implant to accomplish his purposes. As Ben Franklin said, the Lord governs in the affairs of men, even in governments. Verse 2 goes on, it says, Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. Isn't that the truth? Every way of a man is right in his own eyes. Isn't it interesting how all of us are prone to be convinced that our actions and our thoughts and our ways are right And yet when those same things are done by another, we can look at them and say, what are they doing? I can't believe it. Somehow we justify in ourselves what we judge severely in other people. In ourselves, we always come up with a valid reason for the things that we do. And we come up with justifications for why we do them here. The problem is this. Because of our tendency to see things incorrectly and to think about things incorrectly, None of us then are capable of serving as a really valid judge of ourselves and others. And as Solomon wrote previously, all the ways of man are pure in his own eyes, but it's the Lord that weighs the spirit. In our own eyes, all of us think everything we're doing is right. Yeah, it may not be perfect, but I'm not such a bad guy. You're a really bad guy. That's the reality. You do not measure up to God's standard. You are separate from him. Your heart is prone to go astray from him. That's naturally who you are. You're prone to go astray. And when we justify ourselves in our own eyes, we make a mistake, certainly so. And the solution then is to allow the Lord to weigh the heart. So he says there, every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. Is your way right in his eyes? And allow yourself to be searched out by him, weighed by him. And so it's not the one who commends himself that is approved by God, to use loosely one of the writers of the New Testament, but it's rather the one who is commended by God. God sees the heart. 
He knows our thoughts and the intents of our hearts, and therefore he alone is the one qualified to judge us and others. And he's revealed to us in his word his will. And so we bring ourselves into subjection to it, not to our own heart leading and what makes me feel good and I just followed my heart and all of that. That's a big mistake. One more verse here this morning, verse 3. It's a big one, so I'm going to get a drink of water to get ready. It says, To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Now the implication is not said, but it, it, that's why it's an implication. It's, a, it's that the fool thinks... Well, because I brought my sacrifice, I did my religious responsibility, my religious duty, that things like righteousness and justice, that those things don't matter. Yeah, I know I cheat people here and I rip people off there, but at least I go to church every Sunday. Or I cheat people here, I rip people off there, but at least I throw my five bucks in the chicken bucket when it comes by here. I've, I've made my sacrifice. I've done what I'm supposed to do. Somehow, there's this thinking that somehow the offering, somehow the ritual will excuse the person from treating others with justice or that it will grant them some sort of indulgence for committing unrighteousness. And the Bible elsewhere and Solomon here says something very different. So you may recall this story. It's in 1 Samuel 15. King Saul, King Saul in rebellion, offers his sacrifice. He had been waiting for Samuel. Samuel took too long, so he moves ahead, and he takes the responsibility there of the priest, the prophet, and he offers this sacrifice, even though he was not authorized to do so. 1 Samuel 15, 22, Samuel then comes on the scene. Don't you know, just in, just in that instance, if he had waited a half hour longer, but he got ahead of the Lord here, and Samuel comes on the scene, and he says to Saul, the king, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to listen than the fat of rams. A couple things catch there. Number one, to obey is better than sacrifice. Number two is to listen is better than the fat of rams. It's better than the offerings that you might bring. Now, the Lord prescribes those sacrifices and offerings. So it was his idea, but they are not meant to be brought in place of justice and mercy in the way we treat other people. Rather, they are to be in conjunction with justice and mercy. It's very important that we all understand that God is not a ritualist. God is not about, we'll just do these couple of things and you'll be good to go. God is about an inward reality. That's what God desires in each of our hearts, is an inward reality of these things that we are professing. And sadly, too many people miss this important point. The scribes and Pharisees in Jesus' day missed this point. They were experts. If we had Bible trivia contests, they would destroy all of us. They were experts in the minute details of both the law and their traditions. They knew it all. And they could explain it to you, and they could do all of those particular things. But as you know, if you read through the Gospels, you know they missed the heart of the law and their traditions. Even their traditions, they missed the heart of those things, the reason why they were doing it. And Jesus said this to them, woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. You tithe mint, you tithe little leaves here. Um, I'm out of my leg here. Little leaves and, and stuff. Spices, there you go. Uh, you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. You've neglected justice. You've neglected mercy. You've neglected faithfulness. 
And he says, these you ought to have done. You should have done your tithes without neglecting justice and mercy and those other particular things here. How we live is more important than what we give or the religious, the religious rituals that we perform. And Isaiah the prophet, I think, is a really good example. And I'd like you to turn there, please, in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 58. I think this is a, a good example of how the church, excuse me, how the nation of Israel has mi- had missed this point about what's going on inside of your heart being more important than the things that uh, are taking place regarding your religious rituals. Now, the book of Isaiah was written covering a period of time uh, in the years leading up to the Assyrian captivity. And the Assyrian, Assyrian captivity came upon the Jewish people uh, because ultimately because of their proclivity to worship and serve false idols. And the Lord was going to bring a judgment upon them. So it was written about 740 B.C. to 700 B.C. And the final wave of that captivity came in 722, right in the middle of it. Isaiah the prophet writes to the northern kingdom of Israel. Remember, the nation was divided in two. And it was a dark time in the history of the nation. And the people, they were in the throes of idolatry. And that's more than just bowing down to some other god, which in and of itself is bad. But so much of the idolatrous worship was combined with wickedness and lasciviousness and sexual sin. And it was just a zoo the worship of these pagan deities here. But it's interesting, even though they were at the height of this wickedness, chapter 58 of Isaiah tells us that their religious rituals continued nonetheless. And so they were still doing their Jewish rituals, and then they were involved in these pagan deity worship things. And starting in verse 2 of chapter 58, it says this, The people, they seek me daily, they delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake in the judgment of their God. So they come in, oh, it's time for Bible study. Oh, I'm so excited. And we're going to listen and we're going to learn and all this. And then they go out and they get involved in all kinds of craziness. These people, they delight to know my ways as if they were seeking my righteousness. It goes on, it says, they ask me righteous judgments. They, and maybe we could put in parentheses or these things, quotes, they delight to draw near to God. Then notice verse 3, why have we fasted and you see it not, they say to the Lord. Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and you oppress all your workers. Yeah, you're doing your ritual, But you got these other things that are going on as well. He goes on, verse 4. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Now, typically that's associated with a fast. But what the Lord says is, this is what I want from you. I don't want you to put your sackcloth and ashes on. I don't want you to humble yourself in these particular ways. What I need from you, first and foremost, the Lord says is, he says, do you call that a fast? Verse 6 says, this is the fast that I choose. Loose the bonds of wickedness. Undo the straps of the yoke. Let the oppressed go free and break every yoke. Is this the fast? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry? Bring the homeless poor into your house. When you see the naked, to cover him and not to hide yourself 
from your own flesh. Again, the fool will think that because they brought their sacrifice, they can go on ignoring God in all the other matters of morality and matters of godliness and justice and equity. The fool thinks, well, I brought my sacrifice. Well, the fool is very, very wrong. The sacrifice, if you will, if you can picture with me, the sacrifice is essentially the words of the worshiper's mouth. The way they treat the other people, that demonstrates the attitude of the worshiper's heart. And that's what the Lord takes note of. And so when the attitude of the worshiper's heart is askew, and when the attitude of the worshiper's heart is off the mark and not in line with the way that they're living out their lives, then the sacrifice becomes meaningless to the Lord. As Isaiah will say in another place, those righteous deeds, those sacrifices, those acts of worship, those rituals, they're nothing more than a polluted garment. That the worshiper in those instances is then just simply going through the motion, motions. And such worship is meaningless and it's to no effect. Now we read this and we think, okay, well that's an interesting bit of material. That, re- that pertains to the Old Testament Jews, it pertains to their sacrificial system. Well, let me say this. There is one sacrifice that all sacrifices point to, and that's the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you think of yourself as a Christian, and you point to Jesus' sacrifice on the cross as your offering, but you live in such a way that is in direct contradiction to God and his ways, you would do well to stop and consider if the Lord is looking upon the offering that you think you're bringing as if he looks upon it the same way that he did these folks back in Isaiah's day. And to be sure, the offering is still right and good and holy and required. Jesus is still Jesus. And his death is still glorious and wonderful and effective in every means necessary. The problem is not with Jesus. The problem is that the offering that that person is bringing that I described is of no effect for that person if it is not met with a true heart of repentance and dependence on God in every area of their life. And of course, you know, I I think I make it very clear. I'm not saying you have to be perfect. I'm not saying that you have to be without sin for his offering to have any effect in your life. But I will say this. If you are coming to him with your words while the attitude of your heart is completely contrary, well, then your words mean nothing. If you're coming and say, I believe in Jesus, but I do whatever I want, whenever I want, wherever I want, here's the reality. You're not following Jesus. If you do whatever you want, whenever you want, wherever you want, you're following yourself, and you can't save yourself. None of us have the ability to save ourselves. Confessing Christ as Savior means dying to self and living for God. It means acknowledging that what God calls sin is sin, and thus forsaking that sin. And by that we mean wanting nothing to do with that sin. And when that is the attitude of your heart, it's then that Jesus begins impacting every one of our relationships. When that is the attitude of our heart, we're not going to say, I love the Lord who I can't see, all the while hating those around me that I can, as First John tells us. Because those two ideas are incongruous. They don't go together. They can't run together in harmony. To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord, and I'll add the word here, than vain sacrifice. Because indeed, that's what it is if it doesn't come with righteousness and justice. 
And I would encourage each of us, I think it would be good for us to allow the Lord to search out our hearts. I would say search out your own heart, but we know the tendency is what? Remember the proverb? To excuse it in ourselves or whatever. So we would be, do well to allow the Lord to search out our hearts. And every one of us here, you may live forever, 30, 40, 50 years here, a long time. There's still areas of growth that has to take place in every one of us, right? And the psalmist David, I think this would be a good prayer for us to pray. David said this, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way within me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.